Thank you all for spending an afternoon with us to hear about the groundbreaking study of decarbonization pathways in my home country, the US. Net Zero America, Potential Pathways, Infrastructure, and Impacts, which was released in mid-December by Princeton University. I'm Professor Michael Goodsight, Director of the University of Adelaide's Institute for Mineral and Energy Resources, where our focus is on modern energy systems. It is my distinct honor and privilege to chair this session and introduce Dr. Chris Gregg, the Theodora D. and William H. Walton III Senior Research Scientist at Princeton University's Andlinger Center for Energy and the Environment in the United States. At Princeton, Chris leads the Rapid Switch Initiative, combining engineering, business, and social sciences research in low-carbon energy transitions for different regions, industries, and companies. Prior to joining Princeton, Chris was a professor and director of the Dow Center and University of Queensland Energy Initiative at the University of Queensland. His 10-year academic career follows a 25-year career as a company founder and senior executive in the sugar, mining, and energy sectors. He has also served as deputy chairman of Gladstone Ports Corporation and has been a director of two ASX-listed companies. Today, Chris is going to present Princeton's recent Net Zero America study, of which he was a lead author and which is having a major impact on U.S. policy. Chris will entertain questions after his talk. I'll now provide some housekeeping. Uh, we are managing our COVID response under SA Health guidelines. Please observe social distancing. You will also be required to exit the auditorium with all your belongings at the end of this session. This allows us to sanitize the auditorium. As this audience is less than 50% full, you are now permitted to remove your mask if you feel safe to do so. Having now gone through the housekeeping and talked about our distinguished speaker, I'd now like you all to join me in welcoming Chris. Chris. Thanks, Mike, and um, it's a real honor to be here. Um, albeit it's been a little bit of a battle coming from Queensland into Adelaide in the last 24 hours, so, uh, but I can confirm I don't have COVID. Um, look, I would uh, like to start this by just talking about the background. And this all stems back, and I want to acknowledge uh, Professor Hoy here, it stems back to when he was at University of Queensland and I became an academic around the same time he joined. And we were talking a lot about decarbonisation and energy systems and the global, the global effort. And it, it struck us that people didn't have a realistic view of just the scale and pace of change that had to go on and that we could do some interesting work. And um, I'm also thankful he, he sent me off to Princeton for a couple of years to get started. And this, is, this was the outcome of that. Uh, and, and of course, now I'm there permanently. Um, but so the way net zero emerged was I was particularly focused on developing countries and it was about two and a half years ago, an academic at Princeton with political aspirations approached me and said, look, 
you know, you're very busy with India and China, but you ought to think about the US. It's the world's biggest economy. Uh, it's very emissions intensive. It's the, the, the richest uh, country in the world. It's the most innovative. If we can't do it, how could we expect? And we need to lead. And so, you know, they, they offered us a small amount of funds and said, can you do some modelling? And I said, no. I said, I want two and a half million dollars and I want to produce something that people have never seen before and that would really show uh, what, was, what this would take. Uh, and we had our, so this was the beginning of 2019, and we had our sights set on the end of 2020 because we were kind of somewhat hopeful that there might be a change of leadership in the US and we wanted to have something ready for them to pick up. And, and at the time, we thought it was kind of like going to wave something in front of them and they might say, well, yes, let's pursue net zero. Um, but in fact, uh, the impact has been remarkable. So, you know, for, for what we thought, maybe some people will listen to us. So we've been kind of the lead and cover story of every major media outlet in the US, including The Economist and some in, in Europe. Um, and what we're finding is that, like Biden calls it his roadmap. Uh, the Department of Energy Secretary took calls it a blueprint, and, and this is just filtered right through the administration. Um, even, you know, through the Senate and through the House, and even some Republicans are really zeroing in on this and saying, you know, what does it mean for us? And so what I want to show today is kind of the, the methods we used which allowed that political traction to be achieved. Um, so, the first thing we did was we said it's really important that we are technology neutral um, and that we, we recognise there are a number of pathways to get to net zero um, and there's a lot of uncertainties. So, for example, you know, we could go 100% renewables. Maybe that'll work. But what if we can't get all that transmission permitted and built and accepted? What if, what if the public doesn't accept offshore wind and large-scale wind farms so what about CCS? And so we have these different scenarios. And just briefly, the, the, the way we built the scenarios is to say we have very high electrification case in which, you know, 100% of, of, of transportation is electric in 2045. 100% of home heating is electric, whereas today it's 99% gas. And so really rapid uptake of electricity, electric, electric end use then we have a, a less high uptake. And then what we did was vary the supply side. Renewables don't get built faster than the fastest rate we've ever built them each year for the next 30 years at one end. And at the other end, it's 100% renewables, right? No fossil, no, no natural gas, no, no coal, no nuclear, no carbon capture and storage, nothing except renewables. So that's that kind of right-hand end. So between these five scenarios, we felt we were producing a pathway that anyone could like, you know, whether you're a Republican in Texas or a Democrat in Arizona, you, you could find a, a, a pathway to like. And we were very clear to say, we don't have a favourite. In fact, you know, what we've always said is the very best way to get to net zero is the one you can do. Um, and the one you can do means what is socially acceptable, politically acceptable, technically doable, affordable, etc. Um, so 
the other feature of this is it's a totally econ it's a total economy approach, right? So we do deal with animals, methane from cows, etc. And you know what we said is they're really hard to abate. Um, so we're going to have to take the energy and industrial sector negative. And so the first four of these here, so end use electrification and efficiency, clean electricity, which includes wind and solar, but nuclear and biomass and other things, and transmission, clean fuels, you can't get there without clean fuels and feedstocks for the chemical sector, and then CO2 capture and storage. And there's only one scenario where we didn't use that, but we, needed, we, we wanted all these four pillars. Now, what I'm going to talk to you today about is really the findings of this. And the first one is, what does the physical infrastructure look like to get to net zero? What does it look like on the ground? The second one is cost and, and capital mobilisation in particular. How much capital do we have to, to put in place? We'll talk about the workforce and you know, it turns out that's actually been the big political story. About, is, it's about jobs. I'll talk about air pollution and public health. And then, you know, what does it mean for Australia? So, a bit of a teaser on Net Zero Australia and, of course, South Australia. I might make some commentaries about what I think's set the role of South Australia in that. Okay, so physical infrastructure. You know, one of the things we did in these, in these scenarios is that we, which is unique, has never been done before, so as once we uh, developed a scenario, we created these maps, um, and what we did is at a one kilometre square grid across the entire US, we mapped the resource quality, so it be it wind and solar or biomass or where the CO2 storage is, etc. We mapped that down to a one kilometre square radius, and then we mapped on top of that all of the existing infrastructure, so all the roads, the power lines, the cities, the, the farms, um, the stream, all the environmental values, streams, hills, terrain, and then a whole bunch of siting criteria. So whether it be native tidal areas, whether it be national parks, monuments, etc. And what this did was create a series of layers that said, well, you're never going to be able to build a project there. So that was the exclusion zones. And then we cited every piece of infrastructure that got built in this transition year by year within, this, within these one kilometre square radius at the lowest cost, allowing for both the cost of producing the energy and transmitting it or piping it to the place where it had to be used. And you know, so in this energy transition, I don't know how, if people have a sense of how many assets get built, but it is tens of thousands, right? So it was this tedious work and we ended up by the end creating these algorithms which would go through and cite these uh, tens of thousands of assets year by year. Um, but first I want to talk about some, you know, just some of the deployment rates. So this is electricity generation. And that's the business as usual case. And what you see is that every scenario involves doubling the generation of electricity or as much as quadrupling the generation of electricity. And in these maps, the yellow band is solar and the wind band is blue. And the little green band at the top is offshore wind. And so you can see that wind and solar electricity generation is really big. It, it's, it's really the pillar, the cornerstone of the transition, particularly on the electricity side. 
There is that one scenario, um, second from your right, which is the one where we constrain the renewables. And you can see that orange band called nuclear, and you can see the grey bands at the bottom called carbon capture and storage. So this is natural gas with carbon capture and storage. And so if you constrain renewables, you end up having to build an enormous amount of nuclear and an enormous amount of CCS if you want to get to net zero. So all of these, except for the business as usual, get us to net zero. And then, of course, on the far right, that's the 100% renewables, massive generation of solar and wind, and a little bit of hydro which is existing. And, and so another feature of these is we get to 50% renewables in the electricity system by 2030. You know, that's tomorrow. Um, now, South Australia is, is there, right? Uh, and you've been through some battles, but South Australia is a relatively small economy uh, with, you know, I think a more consistent resource base compared to the US. I mean, this is, this is an economy that is something like 100 times bigger than, than South Australia, and, and we're talking about going to 50% renewables from a very small amount, maybe 6% renewables today. Okay, so to the maps that I was talking about. So this is today. Those blue, those blue shaded areas, that's where the wind farms are in the US today. Uh, it's very difficult to see on this map, but you can see some orange in California. That's the solar farms today. So it's a relatively small amount. There's about 150 gigawatts of wind and about 70 gigawatts of solar in the US today. That's big on Australian standards, right? But, uh, but, but that's all there is, and that's what it looks like. The grey areas are the, uh, are the population centres, and the little grey squiggles that aren't state boundaries are transmission lines. And so that's, that's what we see today. And that doesn't look like very much, but already today we are seeing pushback from farmers in Ohio. We're seeing regulations change to make siting of wind farms in the US more difficult. So what does it look like in 2050? So that's kind of the, 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 the impact of going, and this is our middle of the road case, right? So you can see the Midwest becomes really massive amounts of, of wind and, uh, generation. Offshore northeast, so this is where I live now. Um, this is offshore where there's some rare, very, very wealthy people living, massive amounts of wind farms. The only spaces there are for shipping channels. Uh, you can see solar in, in, in Florida and California starting to expand. And the other feature of this one is that we have to expand the transmission system by a factor of three. So that's three times the total transmission in, that exists in the US we have to expand. Now, for those engineers in the room, we're talking about rough, almost 1.5 terawatts of solar and 1.5 terawatts of wind. So the entire generation capacity of any kind in the world today is five terawatts. So just in the US with just wind and solar, we're talking about building almost the entire world's generation fleet capacity. But what if we go to 100% renewables? So now it's the entire east coast is offshore. And, and the density of wind across the states is becoming you know, really, really quite significant. We're expanding transmission by five times. And you know, solar density, if you look on the, on the lower part of Florida here, 
I mean, this is, you know, areas that, which are just like the entire um, York Peninsula or Air Peninsula, just solar panels, right? So this is really quite massive. And uh, those big red lines there, they're, they're transmission corridors that are, that are 90 gigawatts. So the largest transmission corridor in the world today is 10 gigawatts. The largest transmission in a, uh, corridor in Australia is about 5 gigawatts. So, so, you know, we're talking about building transmission systems like we've never seen before. Um, now, if we constrain renewables, it doesn't look so bad. So this is the renewable constraint case actually looks quite doable. A little bit of offshore wind, quite a lot more renewables than there are today, but, but you know, perhaps imaginable. But don't think there's no trade-offs here. We're building 300 new large-scale nuclear plants or 1,000 small modular reactors, and we're injecting 1.7 billion tonnes a year of CO2 that has been captured from natural ga gas plants, etc., into the subsurface, into the underground. So, you know, none of these scenarios are easy. They all have their different features. But I'm going to focus more on the middle of the road scenario. And just to, just to illustrate what it does at a local level, so you know, you saw the maps of the US. What we can do is we can zero in on any community across the states and see what it's going to look like for them. So this is St. Louis, so in Missouri. Now, uh, we pick St. Louis because it's interesting. It's, you know, it's middle America. Peabody lives there, right? The world's biggest coal company lives there. Pe lots of coal-fired generation, lots of farms. Uh, and right now, when you look at it, there's no wind and solar in Missouri. What does it look like for Missouri, uh, for, for, for St. Louis, in 2050? So essentially, the, the whole city becomes just surrounded by solar farms and wind farms. Now, you know, I make it sound daunting, and th that's not the intention. The whole intention of this is to draw attention to what we're trying to achieve here and to start working with communities to now to say, find out what is their value proposition? What is going to uh, um, get communities to come on board with this? Because what we don't want to do is create these cumulative impacts over time and then suddenly the transition stops because the community just says, I've had enough. So we're trying to bring the communities in as partners in the transition. Um, now, just so you don't think it's all about renewables, this is the biofuel story. So uh, in 2050, we're going to have 1,000 new bioenergy plants producing liquid fuels, hydrogen, uh, some power across the US. Those, those quite large dots there, what they are is clusters of bioenergy plants. So the biggest cluster there would be 16 bioenergy plants in a, in a, in a particular radius. And so, you know, the bioenergy industry is big. This is the middle of the road case. It's not the most bioenergy. Um, the other thing that's big is hydrogen. And a lot of the hydrogen is coming from bioenergy. In this slide, the top panel represents where you make hydrogen. And so the three technologies you can make hydrogen are wind and solar driven electrolysis, so the yellow. So this is what we call green hydrogen. The green one, 
the yellow one is the green hydrogen. The green one here is what we call emerald hydrogen, so that's coming from biomass, right? So this is where we gasify things like grasses and wheat straw and things like that and produce hydrogen. And the pink bar is actually natural gas reforming. So this is what Santos will do uh, in, in the Cooper Basin. Uh, and, and what I imagine they are planning to do lots of. Now, the, the thing about the scale, the scale here across every scenario is 60 to 130 million tonnes a year of hydrogen. So, you know, we're talking about massive amount of hydrogen for an industry today which is really, really quite small. There's probably 10% of that. So we're going to multiply the hydrogen industry by 10. Where we're going to use it, which is the bottom deck, we're going to use it to reduce iron, to, you know, zero carbon steel. We're going to produce it for heavy duty transport in hydrogen fuel cells. We're going to make synthetic liquid fuels. So we still need aviation fuel to fly. So we're going to, we're going to use this hydrogen and combine it with CO2 to create these synthetic fuels. We're going to use it for electricity production. So lots and lots of users. The other one I would like to sort of spend a bit of time on is CCS. Uh, and, and I think this is interesting because you have a company in, in South Australia called Santos that, that I think is really quite making quite a strategy of, or plans to make quite a strategy of CCS. So every scenario that we ran, including the 100% renewables, requires us to capture CO2 and, and a lot, right? So the 100% renewables, we still have to capture about 700 million tonnes of CO2. But we don't store it in the underground. We combine it with CO2 to produce fuels because there's no, there's no fossil fuel use in that scenario and you've got to have something to fly aeroplanes, for example, and to make you know, plastics and things like that. Um, but all the other scenarios, they capture CO2 at natural gas plants, cement plants, uh, bioenergy plants, um, hydrogen plants, and it's between a billion and 1.7 billion tonnes a year. And, and we certainly found that it's you know, highly unlikely we could get to net zero without having to capture at least a billion tonnes a year. Now, billion's huge in Australia. You know, we, 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 our total emissions are 500 million. Um, the US is 6 billion, right? So it's, it's sort of starting from 12 times us. Uh, but the majority of that CO2, which is the grey stuff, goes under the ground. Um, and now the, in the interesting thing about storing CO2 under the ground is you can't store it everywhere, right? You've got to find places where it's going to be economic, safe, environmentally acceptable and socially acceptable. And that isn't everywhere. So what we did is we started with the US today and these grey shaded areas are the areas that working with industry we deemed to be the most prospective storage locations um, where we could do it safely and, 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 and without harming the environment and, and without leaking in the future. And then we worked out what it would cost and what the capacity of each of these basins are. And then we built out a, a pipeline infrastructure to get it from all these different sources. So there's about 2,000 sources across the US, bioenergy plants, natural gas combined cycle plants, cement plants, uh, hydrogen production plants, and that's what we end up with in 2050. So these two, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 capture plants around the US, and this network of about 100,000 kilometres of pipeline, which takes 
you know, CO2 to these particular basins. Now, these pipelines, you know, the, the blue ones, for example, they're two 48-inch pipelines in parallel. So this is, this is big as well, right? And, you know, it's really hard to permit pipelines in the US as well. Uh, so, but this is the middle of the road, right? So this is the one that had 1.5 terawatts of wind and solar and 1,000 bioenergy plants as well. So, you know, very, very big ambitions. And, and to put a billion tonnes a year into context, on a volume equivalent basis, that's 30% more than the US oil production today. So we're talking, and, and you know, essentially it's the, it's the reverse, right? Where instead of producing oil out of the subsurface, we're injecting CO2 into the subsurface. And the skills are the same and the, the operations are the same. So we're talking about building the entire US oil production capability that took 150 years to develop in 30 years. So it's a, it's a massive undertaking. So that's kind of the infrastructure story. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about cost and capital. And the first thing is, one of the headlines we took away from this is that the energy system in a net zero future need not cost more than we spend on energy today. So we spend about 4.5% of GDP uh, in the US on energy services today. And you know, three out of our five scenarios would see energy costing the same. Two scenarios would see it cost a little more. But nothing like some of the alarmists have had us believe that you know, if, we, if we go to net zero, the, it's going to break the bank and it'll be totally unaffordable. Uh, so this has been a really important message that's helped build com uh, political traction. Uh, and the fact that three scenarios, including the constrained renewables, and, and the you know, quite high renewables, but not the highest renewables, are all there in a narrow band, has meant whether you're a pro-renewables or a pro-CCS or a Republican or a Democrat, you know, you've got the same message. But it's not just about costs. So the real challenge here is because the role of renewables, we're talking about capital, right? So we're trading the long-run expenditure on operations and fuel for upfront capital. And so the real challenge with these scenarios is the capital mobilisation challenge. And this is the middle of the road scenario, $10 trillion in capex to be invested and operating by 2050. On the left-hand so left side there is more of a technical challenge, which is in order to mobilise that capital, we've got to spend about $600 billion on feasibility studies, permitting, you know, stakeholder engagement. And that's the stuff that, that's the high risk stuff, right? That's the stuff that needs balance sheet equity. And that's the scarce part, right? So we'll find enough capital for projects that are fully sanctioned and, and, and got the risk dealt with. Um, but, but even then, $10 trillion, that's, that's a pretty fast pace. The amount of capital that gets spent in the energy sector today over a 30-year period would be less than half of that. So we're, we're really talking about a big shift of capital flows from other sectors into the energy sector. Um, I'd also talk about the workforce. So focus for now on the left-hand side. Every scenario involves a significant increase in employment in the energy sector. 
So the, the scale on that graph is millions of jobs. So at the moment, there's about two million, just over two million direct jobs in the US energy, system, energy economy. Uh, that goes anything from about two and a half, so just a 20% increase, to over eight million, so a fourfold increase in energy workforce. Now, the good news of this, the highlight that some people take away is this is a magnificent political story, right? This is job creation, jobs and growth. We hear it every day from our politicians. Uh, as a person who spent the first 20 years, 25 years of his career building things, it terrifies me, the challenge of attracting, training and retaining the talent to deliver the energy transition. And again, you know, this is not intended to scare people, this is intended to get government to focus on the need to train, focus on, to, to get companies to focus on how to bring their, attract the workforce. But the other message which is on the right-hand side is that it's not homogeneous. And this is the critical issue. There are states that will see jobs lo lost, and significantly. There are sectors that will see losses of jobs. And you, you, know, you don't turn a coal miner into a solar farm developer overnight, right? So there's a real social transition that has to be managed here. And it probably means also that the way we went about our cost optimising siting is not going to work. We're going to have to take a lot more than cost into account when we develop these plans. Um, but this has been really valuable for the administration. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, they have, within the energy and climate departments, uh, both in the Senate and in the White House, they have people who are focusing on these maps and on just transition and saying, this transition will never happen if we allow communities to be left behind. And I think the same message is true of Australia, right? You know, uh, I think South Australia's maybe one of the least challenged on that front. But the Latrobe Valley for Victoria, the Hunter Valley for, for uh, New South Wales and the Bowen Basin for Queensland, these are gonna be hotspots which, you know, they can, balance, they can make or break an election, so. Uh, and then, last but not least, air pollution and public health, uh, I won't dwell on this, but all of our scenarios involve the coal industry disappearing in the first 10 years, right? So there is no coal in the system after 2030. Uh, and because our, uh, one of the key scenarios, key aspects of our scenarios is this electrification, what we find is um, air pollution benefits are huge and there are 200 to 300,000 less premature fatalities due to air pollution in our scenarios. So it's huge, right? And the avoided health damages comes to two to three trillion dollars. So it's not all about investment. There are huge savings for the, for the economy as well. So I'm going to finish with a little note about Australia because we've started a Net Zero Australia study, um, which, which the plan is to do it just like we did for the US. Um, and I'm showing the sort of, sort of high-level modelling regions for the energy sector. But what's intriguing is it's they're both about 8 million square kilometres, continental US and Australia. And our final energy consumption, ours is about, you know, a 15th, 1 15th of the US. So we've got all this land, we've got plenty of renewables, 
you'd like to think it's actually going to be a bit of a dawdle for Australia to get to net zero. But then you're going to have to take a few options off the table. Um, biomass is going to be limited. We are the driest continent on the planet, and so we, we, we are not as well endowed with biomass. Our CCS resources are good, but they're, 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 they're more disparate. You know, they're the northwest shelf and, and the middle of Australia, so they're not as, they're not as uh, well, well spaced. And of course, nuclear is not on the table for Australia, so if we did have any constraints on renewables, we don't have that option to pull. So, but even then, at first glance, I feel like the net zero Australia is kind of doable if I focus on the domestic economy and if I focus on Australia. Um, but one of the things we are also doing is we're looking at net zero ASEAN, net zero um, Chile and other places, but I'll focus on ASEAN for a start, because, you know, to the north and east of us are, are a number of countries who have either committed to net zero by 2050 or are very closely contemplating it, and their land area is less than 10% of ours, but their final energy demand is eight times, 10 times ours, and growing fast. And so, you know, when I talk to Japan about net zero, or I talk to Singapore about net zero, or Taiwan, first thing they, you know, I say, well, I'm not sure how we're gonna get them. They say, ah, yes, but you're forgetting about imports. So they are expecting a big, green energy you know, import connection, right? Whether it's electricity cable or whether it's a hydrogen ship or, or, or some other sort of zero carbon option. But this is a huge opportunity uh, for Australia. But it will make the kind of scale of the challenge much more like the US, right? Because we're not decarbonising the Australian economy, we're decarbonising the Australian economy and half of Southeast Asia. Um, and so just a final note to say, I think South Australia really, um, I hate to say this, but you know how I, as, a, as an energy systems guy, you know how I see South Australia? I see it as a laboratory, right? I mean, I think it's the perfect testing ground for um, showing the way, you know. Um, so, you know, both in, in renewable penetration, but also CCS with the Santos uh, opportunities, um, and then with the, with the export opportunities, sort of developing a pathway to the hydrogen economy. You know, this could all start in, in uh, South Australia. And I know, I know this is already on the agenda. It's got a long way to go, um, but I think, you know, it's something the nation should get behind. Uh, and certainly in the US, we are watching with, uh, with interest. Uh, and with that, I'd say thank you very much for listening and I'd be happy to take any questions or comments or criticism. Thank you so much, Chris. And I already see hands going up, but um, there is a, uh, a question and answer mic in the aisle that we would like you to use and please line up at the, <coughs> I'm sorry, at the question and answer mic in the aisle and keep your questions short and to the point, and the um, arrangers ask you to not have statements, please. Um, that was really exciting. And we already have a person with a question. We'll hear from you as soon as you get to the mic. <coughs> um, 
I'd like to ask a question about leadership and momentum. Where do you see that coming from? From politics or from business or community or a mixture? And given that you're looking at a 30, this is modeling a 30 year scenario, uh, have you got thoughts about how to maintain that momentum, especially given electoral cycles? That's a great question, and it's probably the one that terrifies me most. Um, you know, I think I said two and a half years ago, we were sitting there saying, imagine if we had a change of administration. We're sitting here now saying in three years' time, imagine if we have a change of administration. Um, to some degree, uh, I think we're hoping that we get enough momentum globally uh, and, and that it starts to infiltrate the kind of uh, geopolitical dialogue and trade arrangements. And so I know, for example, Europe and the US is, is deep in discussions about kind of trade agreements that involve border adjustments and, you know, dealing with carbon intensive economies in a different way. Uh, and if some of that can get embedded in the, in the international, sort of legally embedded, then, then that's gonna create some momentum. Um, I think the other thing is that what we think is that of those five pathways, mixing and matching them is fine, right? So if, if there is a chain of, change of administration who says, you know, if one's going hell-bent on renewables and the other one wants to go hell-bent on nuclear and CCS, no damage done with that, right? But you can mix and match them and still get to net zero, um, and that was one of the reasons why we did that. But I do think... Uh, I, do th I do think the political cycles is going to be an issue. Um, now, the question around business and government, I think, we're, we're, in fact, we're writing some stuff about this now. I don't think this can get done without a new kind of coalition between government and business. There is just so much physical infrastructure to be built, so many social challenges to be dealt with, um, in, you know, sharing value with communities and that. That will not happen with just business leading. That will not happen in the way we've traditionally done uh, energy sector investments. Um, so, so one of the things we're trying to encourage now is, is uh, a thing we're called, calling um, zero carbon energy coalitions and these involve communities, governments, uh, NGOs, businesses, um, universities, um, because, you know, it's just so much. And I think if we can get these coalitions formed, then that's going to create some momentum and some push from the voters, right, uh, because they're sharing in the value. Uh, so that's kind of the idea. Um, but I think I, I agree with you. It's central to the challenge uh, is just getting out, just keeping the bipartisanship and keeping the momentum over, over 30 years. Thank you. Follow-up questions? You, you just said the magic words, 30 years. Um, so I did a PhD about incumbent resistance to something as simple as carbon pricing, which, which you didn't mention. And we've been, we've been talking about doing this for 30 years, so I'm perhaps a little bit more pessimistic than you. But you, it was a question of no statement, so ignore that. Two short questions. Politically, do you accept that Joe Biden's 
interest in and willingness to go a bit further was largely a result of the Sunrise Movement. And a technical question about your modeling, I didn't hear you say anything about trying to reduce demand. So is the current level of energy demand in the United States an untouchable given? Or are you also talking about radically reducing the amount of energy that Americans, and for that matter, Australians consume? So, so I will make a response to your comment about pessimistic and me being optimistic. Um, Professor Hoy will tell you I'm one of these guys who's always said this is, gonna, this is damn near impossible. Uh, our intention was not to be optimistic or pessimistic, but to say, you know, this is what it would take. This is what it will look like. Because what I was tired of is everyone announcing net zero, but without having a clue what it might take. Um, so we're trying to give people a sense of this is what's in front of you. Um, I think I think Biden is being influenced by more than uh, more than the activists now. I think you know last week in Northwest U.S. with places like temperate places like uh, Oregon seeing you know, 45, 47 degrees C, people saying it's like 15 degrees above the average summer temperature. Um, you know, I think people are quite concerned about climate change in the US uh, now. Uh, so I think, I think there is more at play here and I think there's also um, an opportunity to be, a, a, you know, a global leader in this space and I think so, I think, I think much more than that. Uh, I think the COVID, Situation has provided a, a recovery plan. So, there's this, I mean, there's $10 trillion worth of infrastructure spending and all those jobs, etc., isn't a bad, isn't a bad political launch. Um, to your last comment about demand, you, you, look, uh, the, the report's nearly 400 pages long and it's 20 person years of work. Uh, I didn't talk about demand so much, but I would describe what, so, so just to be clear, in our high electrification case, the increase in energy productivity, so energy use per unit of GDP, is double the historical average. So now some, some people who believe in, you know, everyone's gonna, you know, reduce their electricity use and, you know, you're all gonna start um, cycling and nobody's gonna drive cars would say we are not ambitious enough on energy demand. And again, we weren't trying to be ambitious or optimistic, we were trying to say what's plausible. And so our, our range is from a, you know, I think, I think twi do, being twice as good as we've historically been is plausible. Being, um, you know, if we have a lower electrification case that only gets to about 70% better than we've historically been. Um, so, yeah, so I think we've been kind of pragmatic about that. That's not to say we couldn't do better. And the reality is if we do better on the demand side, we will need to build less on the supply side. Um, that's a given. And that I'll be, I'll be the happiest man in the world if, uh, if we do do that. But I'm also pragmatic that we haven't, we haven't shown much sign of that. In, to, to the other comment you made about, you know, in 30 years we haven't, haven't adopted a carbon price, 
I think we've got to stop talking about a carbon price. A carbon price was a perfect solution 40 years ago when emissions were half and we had 100 years to get the job done. That, that's an economic, economist's approach, right? It's way beyond that now. Just letting the market do this isn't going to work. So we've got to be, you know, I don't care whether it's a penalties, permits, incentives, we've got to do everything we can and, and we've just got very little time to get it done. Thank you. Next question. Thank you. Thank you both for your service to this. Um, we hear this described as our moonshot quest, um, but of course we know it's much more complex than that. How does the modelling, or how might the modelling, and the subsequent approaches and strategies grapple with the other critical issues that we're facing, such as biodiversity loss, chemical pollution, as well as the uh, social complexities, equality and redistribution of wealth? Great question, and um, it's funny. I, I, I have a paper under review which actually refers to the moonshot as kind of a very poor analogue in the sense of it created a hugely ambitious goal and it involved levels of cooperation between, and risk sharing between government and the private sector that is absolutely going to be needed in this at, at a bigger level and for longer. What it didn't have to do is deal with those other things and, and that's where the complexity comes in. So um, biodiversity communities, so you know, one of the reasons we show these maps is to also show that there are trade-offs to be made, right? And so as you think about, I don't like nuclear and I don't like CCS and I own, or, or I don't like wind farms, every one of those has some impact on biodiversity and other things. And so we have to be pragmatic and, and work out what trade-offs are going to be made. You can't get to net zero without having some environmental impact, right? That's, that's, that's just a fact. Um, I think the community issues, though, I think I've talked about quite a bit. Um, you know, the you know, how are you going to sell this to communities? Both, both, you know, how are you going to make sure that it's affordable for everyone? How are you going to make sure that people's jobs are protected or, or people are allowed to transition? How are you going to make sure people are appropriately compensated for impacts on their land? I think that's kind of the critical story. To be honest, I, I, you know, I think there's a hell of a lot to get built here, but I can find a way to get this built. Uh, but finding a way to bring the community along and, and all of those other challenges is probably the, the, the biggest part of the, of the exercise. So great question, and it's front and centre of my mind. Um, answers to come, <laughs> to be learned. Thank you. Next question, please. Yes, actually, from Mike Young. Chris, thank you for that very informative um, so, sort of overview of America and your insights actually into Australia. I've just finished uh, um, constructing a CG, just the e-model of Australia going to net zero. And the first wake-up call that I had, which was a big one, was the importance of Australia's population policy. We're on track to at least 40 million people by 2050, possibly a bit less, depending on what happens which reshapes everything. Even if we just reduce the emissions by 60%, that's well over 80% per person if we have that growth. And I don't think many people understand that. 
So I wonder, if, actually, in your work, have you assumed a steady state for America in terms of population, or a 20 or 30 percent growth? How does that run? The second, I want to ask you three questions. Okay. Um, Remember, I, I'm old. I, I'm, my memory's not good, so you might have to come okay. back to them. But the second one is on the shape of the pathways. In the models we've done, we've taken the current government's policy of um, reducing emissions by 26, 28% with Kyoto credits. When you work through all of that, it's actually reducing emissions by 1% per year, a little bit, about 1.1% per year until 2030, which is 11% by then, and then a massive sprint in 20 years, which makes the challenge of what you're talking about for Australia, plus bringing all these extra people in, for me, terrifying. Um, how do you, so have you done any work on the shape of adjustment pathways or just assumed a straight line? And then the third issue is what have you done about all the other gases other than CO2? In our model, we spent six months trying to make it work and in the end we had to invent a direct capture industry to just sim simply suck CO2 out of the air to get there for Australia, given the size of our agriculture, and doing things like biosequestration. Um, we hit absolutely ridiculous costs and we couldn't grow food anymore. And we had to plant the whole world to trees. So we now take a third of all of Australia's emissions out using um, direct capture. The good news is we can get there, it's affordable, so I, so I don't disagree. But how have you addressed population? How have you addressed pathways? Actually, and also, what have been about all the other gases? Yep. Um, so population, um, basically, we worked with uh, DOE and other government departments to see what, what the general consensus was on, on future population trajectories. Uh, so it is, a, it is a growing population for the US. Um, I can't remember. But it's, it's actually one of the more faster growing mature economies of the world in terms of population. Um, and so that is built into the demand. So even in the reference case, right, um, our, 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 um, also, so in our scenarios, energy productivity is going up by 1.7% per annum and, and overall final energy demand comes down by about 30%. But the end services and through population growth and, and activity is actually going up. So, um, yeah, so we, we do have population growth. I can't remember the exact number that's, that's involved. Um, how are we doing oh, the, the, the shape of the curve? So, yes, all of ours are linear. We don't believe any of them will be linear, but these are just pathways that you'll deviate from. Um, I am very sceptical of people who have these ideas of starting slow and then having a massive sprint at the end. Um, you know, I would sprint like hell now and then recognise that I might get a bit fatigued towards the finish line. Um, and so we deliberately said, you know, we had a lot of discussion about this, uh, and we deliberately said, no, we're going to set an ambitious start. Now, the interesting thing is when Biden announced his climate plan, he, sh he lifted it, so he's gone for a 52% for a reduction beyond 2005 by 2030. So his, his decarbonisation piece at 2030 is slightly more than ours, right? Um, 
And so to, to the extent we influence that, um, and, and someone working in the White House was one of our authors, uh, you know, he, I said to him, that's even more ambitious than Net Zero America. And he goes, yeah, I always felt you were a bit conservative. <laughs> so, so they've gone harder than, than, than we did. I, Australia's playing, a, I think, a very dangerous game by going for a gentle start and believing they'll bring it home at the end. Uh, and then your last question was about non-CO2 emissions. So, so non-CO2 emissions, so this is things like methane from, from animals, etc. Um, is we don't model that, so we don't actually say that there's a technology cost and all this sort of stuff. What we did is we went out to expert elicitation and, and asked the industry and said, look, you know, how much of the, of the cattle can we feed with seaweed and things like that? You know, how can we improve practices to reduce methane emissions? And the answer's not a whole lot, right? So, and we didn't make any kind of outrageous ambition that we're all going to stop eating meat. Um, you know, I, I know I should eat less meat, but I don't know if I'm going to. Um, so, so our methane emissions from the ag sector didn't really change much. We did improve uh, fugitive emissions from, you know, pipelines and stuff like that. We improved that a lot. Uh, and, but, but, if, but essentially we put these in as um, exogenous inputs to say, here's the, here's the transition of, of the other gases. We also did a similar thing with the land sinks, so forestation, soil carbon improvements, did that through expert opinion and then we set those and then we said, and what we end up with those is we've got to get a negative 170 million tonnes from the energy and industrial sectors. And you, you need direct air capture. That doesn't surprise me, right, because you don't have the biomass. The US is well endowed with biomass. It's, it's, you know, it's a very wet country and, um, and lots of water resources and land and, and great biomass. So, so we get our negative emissions, uh, the drawdown that you're talking about. We get that largely from biomass. There are two scenarios where direct air capture was needed, the 100% renewables, and it's not needed because we need, need negative emissions, it's needed because we need carbon. Because there's no fossil, we need some carbon to make the synthetic fuels for aviation and things like that. Uh, and then we, in, the, in one other scenario, we use a little bit of direct air capture. So I'm not surprised. Thank you, and we have time for a very short and last question. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. Uh, first of all, um, many congratulations um, on an extremely complex uh, modeling and tremendous achievement there for a complex uh, country economy like uh, the United States. Uh, almost everything you said uh, really resonates with me, uh, bar one. Um, all the discussion that I hear is around national boundaries and predominantly led by, uh, in reality, uh, by the developed economies. So now what you described there is uh, representing, let's say, 400 million people, uh, the world comprising of uh, just under 8 billion. If you extrapolate trying to achieve the sort of uh, results we would need to make a measurable difference to the climate, which knows no national boundaries, is it best for a country like Australia, the developed economy, the one and a half billion people, to spend all their energy in their own boundaries or to be spending it somewhere else 
in support of the other six billion people uh, that also aspire to similar, if not better, uh, life pleasures and comforts and uh, food and mm. health services and education and everything else. I'd appreciate your comments. Uh, look, we're, we're singing from the same hymn book. Um, you know, I started my journey on, on energy transitions most worried about the big, fast-growing, developing economies, India, China, Southeast Asia, um, and I still am, and Africa to come. Look, uh, the, the, the ultimate battle for climate challenges is going to be won and lost in the developing countries. You are absolutely right. Um, but we can't actually expect them to do something that we're not willing to do ourselves. So, so the US exercise is not about saying it's all about doing it in the US. It, it's about saying the US and Europe and Australia need to show leadership and get something done, right? Only then can we expect the rest of the world to, to believe in this, this kind of pathway. Um, because after all, the, it was the fossil development that made us all rich, right? Um, having said that, I don't think we should spend all our efforts and all of our money uh, at home, right? I think, we, I think we have to help and invest in, in, uh, in offshore. I think that's essential. I, that's not necessarily easy, right? And, and I can tell you a really interesting story. Um, before I became an academic, I ran a company called ZeroGen, which was, at the time, the world's first and biggest carbon capture and storage project was going to be in Australia. And I killed it because, you know, we, we had a, a access to $2.5 billion. We spent $120 million on feasibilities and exploration, and it didn't make sense to do it. And I went to the government and the industry sponsors, and I said, you know, if you want to really make a difference for CCS, don't spend $2.5 billion here. Go to the Japanese government and get them to match it. Go to the Chinese and US governments and get them to match it. And go build five in China. If we do that, we will be making a difference where the biggest emissions in the world are, the most coal and, and, and so forth. Um, and people just looked at me like I had two heads, right? There was no way we were going to send that money offshore. So, so whilst I agree we need to be um, investing in the developing countries, it's very challenging. And, it, you know, we have this uh, um, global climate fund which is for that purpose. It's got $100 billion in it or something. It needs, a, it needs $50 trillion in it. Well, and, and Chris, on that note, um, I'd like to thank everybody for your attendance today. And please join me in thanking Chris for his amazing talk, your colleagues for your inspiring work, and uh, the University of Adelaide's honored to have you here in this topic that's important to us. And thank you, for Pro Professor Hoy, for attending and other distinguished guests. And please continue to join us in these important events sponsored by the University of Adelaide and other generous sponsors. Thank you all again. Thank you.